Today we uh, continue, this is the penultimate, our second to last week in uh, studying some of Jesus' parables uh, before we begin Advent in a couple weeks, uh, the, the lead up to uh, Christmas when we, when we practice together waiting um, in, in a very active and a very intentional way. And, and, and when um, in Advent we, we uh, begin to, to consider what it's like to wait for Jesus to come again. Uh, so we, uh, we wait, but we'll get there. We'll do that in a couple weeks. Jesus taught in parables as ways to, to get at not just our minds, but our hearts and our imaginations. Um, the things that we want, the things that we desire, um, the ways that we conceive of this world and possibility and, and open them up just enough to inject some grace and inject um, something new, um, something um, that we couldn't have arrived at by ourselves. Today we, uh, we find a parable, it's a, it's a small little parable and it's kind of a tag on Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel. Uh, I'll read it out of Luke 6. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I'll show you what it's like when someone comes to me, hears my words, and puts them into practice. It's like a person building a house by digging deep and laying the foundation on bedrock. When the flood came, the rising water smashed against that house, but the water couldn't shake the house because it was well built. But those who don't put into practice what they hear are like a person who builds a house without a foundation. The flood water smashed against it and it collapsed instantly. It was completely destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. How many of y'all have been to St. Louis? Show of hands. See those hands. Yes. A couple months ago, I went to visit my brother and his family just outside of St. Louis, and we went to a Cubs cards game. I think I told, told some of you guys about this. And I got the chance for the first time to see this amazing gateway arch, right? I've seen it on like coffee mugs, and I've seen it in, you know, pictures of it, but this is the tallest monument in the United States. It eclipses the Washington Monument, which growing up on the East Coast, that was like the monument, right? And it really lived up to my expectations when we stood at the foot of it outside of the baseball stadium. Its shape and size makes you marvel at it. It is quite a feat. It's, it's strange. Um, when I got back, I like went headlong into like research. I call it research. It's like nerdy internet searching, right? Research sounds like I went to a library or something, you know? But I found out in my searching that if you cross-cut it, you'd find a bunch of equilateral triangles. The whole thing is just triangles. It's geometric. If you cross-cut it, it's all made out of steel. It's more than 62 stories high. And they built this. This is coming up on an anniversary. Um, when they built it in 1965, I also, in, in my research, I'm really good at internet. I'm really good at internet. internet so. <laughs> I found this quote from this construction project manager. <laughs> they asked him if, if his workers were scared of falling off of these heights, because back then that was like 
so high and, and the untraditional structure made it seem so dangerous. And this is what the, the project manager said. We're not worried about falling. It doesn't make any difference if you fall from 50 feet or 400, you're just as dead. <laughs> Only this way you get a little longer to pray, is what he said. <laughs> I also found things like, at any given time, this thing is built to sway nine inches in any direction. And like that sounds terrible, you know? It can withstand winds up to 150 miles an hour. I was really surprised also that when I learned uh, all this stuff is, is built up where we can see it, but, but I, found it, I found it really, really interesting, the kind of the subterranean structure of this thing. You can see how big it is. The subterranean structure of this thing, the foundation, is 60 feet deep of poured concrete. That's a whole football field red zone deep that this thing's standing on with the express purpose of providing structure and instability. This thing can sway nine inches because it's 60 feet deep. This year they're doing renovations, but it's all on a little bit of rust here and there. It has nothing to do with how well it's built. It continues to anchor its place on the Mississippi River. You got me thinking, what is the first thing that I've built? What's the first thing in your lives that you built? To think, think about that. You probably don't even remember it, right? Like, when I see my kids build stuff, I know you're not going to remember that. It probably was not even anywhere close to the amount of stability and permanence of something like that monument. You probably built something really clumsily or rudimentary. This it was sticks or sand or Lincoln logs or blocks or Legos or whatever. You probably can't even remember it. But you can probably remember how frustrated you were when someone toppled it or when it fell over. When you were at the beach and your drip castle got collapsed by the tide that you just didn't account for. That tide was going to come in. Or maybe you were the one if you, have, if you have siblings, maybe you were the one playing King Kong on this thing. Your sister put up this immaculate structure and you just swiped it, you know? Maybe you grew up and you watched your dad measure twice and cut once and like slowly build something up that was gonna last. I think it's really elemental that human beings are builders. That we seek to build structures and lives whole cathedrals with our lives to express what we love, what, what we're after, what we've achieved. What are you building? So then Jesus sneaks this little parable in at the end of the Sermon on the Plain. This is like the cherry on top of the cake that taps into that fundamental thing that we do, that we build. And he's He's just given his audience those words to build a life on. He's given a constitution to God's people. Now it was all about faith and obedience. A faith to walk in this way of living. An obedience to take seriously all of those prophetic words that he was offering. Criticism. Energizing encouragement. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I'll show you what it's like when someone comes 
and hears my words and puts them into practice. It's like a person building a house by digging deep and laying foundations on bedrock. Following Jesus' building metaphor, uh, theologian pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He, he talks about faith. He says, faith sets its life on a new foundation. And only on this new foundation can I live justified before God. He says, this foundation is the living, dying, and rising of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Faith means to base a life on a foundation outside of myself, on an eternal and holy foundation on Christ. Faith means to be captivated by the gaze of Jesus Christ. One sees nothing but him. Faith means to be torn out of the imprisonment of one's own ego and to be liberated by Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus' words cut and they challenge us. Because he knew we'd be tempted. He knows we're always tempted in our building. We're tempted to base everything off of anything but him. We skip over that grueling hidden work, that foundation building of asking God to clear the ground of our souls. Matt talked last week in this, the parable of the good ground. He talked about, uh, and, and closed with this, this prayer, break me open, Jesus, set me free, then find and keep your own good ground in me. This breaking hurts. We fear it might actually break us to ask Jesus to, to break us open. Thorns and weeds are everywhere. It's way more comfortable to get used to them, used to the way things are, used to sin, used to blindness, fear and numbness that's just there. Like, I'm so tempted to do this. Like, I'd rather, instead of rooting up those things, I'd rather just make a garden out of it and being like, here's my weeds that I'm growing really successfully. <laughs> but God wants to disturb and disrupt us in order to nourish and renew us. God wants to clear the plot of our lives so he can become the foundation, the rock, the cornerstone upon which we're built. This is also why the cornerstone is always the stumbling block. Perhaps you've been stumbling over God rather than building on him. And this isn't anything new. This is the story of God's people. Jesus knows this history. Stacking bricks to build Babel. This is a stairway to heaven. How we live our daily lives more align with kind of Pharaoh's building philosophy, brutal brick assembly line life, than God's gracious Sabbath way of life. We hate it, but we, we live it. More clay, less straw. More productivity, less worship. Pharaoh's empire of restlessness versus Yahweh's kingdom of rest. If that's what your building looks like right now, if that's what right now it feels like, stop. Just stop. Lay it down. 
put the bricks down. Reset, refocus, repent. You're loved. What you're building can wait. According to Jesus' words here, there's even a chance that you're in your frenzy and haste, what you're building is going to have to fall down a couple times anyways in order to build it up right on a good foundation, on Christ. That all the things we do, even great things, Jesus said his followers would do even greater things than he did. That through the Spirit we must grow out of the roots of Jesus, not our own. These roots are graceful, righteous, justifying love. That we grow out of this hopeful, powerful resurrection life. But we don't often want that. <laughs> that means we'd have to change. It means we'd have to trust, be a little out of control. It would, it would mean that we might not really know what that means. So we build sometimes without a foundation. And I feel kind of fraudulent here. I am really good at the internet, like I mentioned, but I'm not a builder um, by trade. But I think even I know there's not really any condition that a foundationless house is a well-built house. Like, I just don't think that that's true. Even under ideal conditions, a house with a foundation just won't last. Erosion happens. No rain will topple a house. Too much rain will topple a house. It doesn't even take a storm. We do anything we have to do to get around dealing with building on a foundation that causes us to submit, to empty, to let go to God. So instead, we, we build stronger walls, right? We circle the wagons. We, we, we make steel frames. We guard against this instability that we know we have by building fortresses, put moats around ourselves, turrets, deadbolts, a whole armory to keep people at arm's, at arm's reach, to keep God at a distance. Or maybe we build boats. That sounds good, right? One thing a boat does is take the coming flood seriously, right? Ask Noah. He was ready when the rain wouldn't stop. A boat's set to handle floods, but it can also be adrift. To not be dependent on anyone or anything else. So we build a boat and we don't settle in. We, we just dock for a little period of time and then we take off. We don't even really say bye. Or maybe we build libraries. That sounds like a good project. This is my temptation, right? To gather vast stores of knowledge, many, many shelves of dusty, musty, leather-bound books, highly flammable leather-bound books, tomes of who we were or who we want to be or who we never were. And if we ever do leave the library, our eyes are so blurry and our vocab is so refined, we don't even know how to look and talk to normal people outside of our study hall. Maybe that doesn't resonate with you. Maybe, maybe you're building a resort. Maybe that would be the ideal. 
a little enclave, a little man cave, with, all, with a little bit of all those previous things, right? It's a place to be safe. It's a place to retreat. It's a place to drift into another world. But I think what we're called is to build houses, to build homes, embedded in real places with real neighbors, with real threats. It's really hard to love your neighbor as yourself if you don't know who your neighbor is, if, if you've never met them, you don't see them, and you don't do all this on purpose. It's really hard to love your neighbors if you're so independent from them that it doesn't really matter if they exist. Richard Rohr um, puts it this way, and he, he's talking about this parable, and he says, to build your house well is, ironically, to be nudged beyond its doors. That's, that's an irony for us, that vulnerability begets security. That opening, radically opening ourselves to God and to others will solidify your life rather than closing down. That thankfulness and generosity come from this hard-going, slow, sometimes frustrating way, dependent on a foundation that can bear it, depending on Christ to hold it all up, to hold it all together. It seems so fragile. That's what faith is. Faith is in God's faithfulness. When the flood came, the rising water smashed against the house, but the water couldn't shake the house because it was well built. But those who don't put into practice what they hear are like a person who built a house without a foundation. The flood water smashed against it and it collapsed instantly. It was completely destroyed. One thing to notice here. It says when, not if. When the flood came. <laughs> when there's a catastrophe, not if. When the levees break and the waters rise, not if. When violence grips our world, when it tears up our neighborhoods and our families, not if. When our marriages struggle and suffer, not if. When the thermometer dips and the pantry gets thin, not if. And when all that happens, we'll default to what we're built on. That's the thing. That's kind of the implicit irony in this. Is it says a house not built on a foundation, but that's kind of a foundation in, its, in itself. It's just a really lousy one. And so when all this happens, when we get shook up, you realize what your foundation really is. And you'll stand or you'll crumble. We'll crumble if our load-bearing bedrock is the sand of our own confidence. That works if, that seems like it's going to work if you're a really confident person. We'll crumble if we try to build on our smarts or our ability to make it happen. And that seems like it's going to work if you're really smart or you seem like you can make it work. Man, it's terrible when it crumbles, though. Some of you guys are in this right now. Shook up. You feel like you're up to your neck and your house is smashed. 
Christ hasn't abandoned you. The foundation of the house is the part that's underwater, in the middle of the flood, holding the house up. And so Christ is with you. That's the promise. That's the good news. Look to him. Lean on him. Feel his presence. Trust in his ability to see you through it. Not necessarily above it, but through it. Don't cheat that process because, strangely enough, the worst storm can be a blessing. And I don't mean this in a trite way. When is a storm a blessing? When getting our house knocked over gives us an opportunity to reset our foundation on Christ and to be built back up. Sometimes a house is so poorly built, the only thing you can do is knock it down. The mayor of New Orleans, um, recently on the 10th anniversary of rebuilding that Crescent City from the devastation of Hurricane Katrina, he recently said, and, and this is what, they've, what they're starting to realize in, in New Orleans, it doesn't make it any less terrible or painful, but it, they're starting to realize 10 years later, he says, we've shown what's possible that from the worst disaster there can be rebirth. Out of despair there can be hope, out of darkness light, out of destruction beauty. And not just that, a storm can be a blessing because Jesus blesses those who are knocked down. Sifting through the rubble, unsure of their future or their place to be. Early in this same chapter in Luke 6, go back this week and read Luke 5 and 6. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You're blessed when you have nothing, because in your lack, God will be your everything. He says, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. You're blessed when your stomach is empty because God is preparing a feast for you and you're the first one invited. You're the guest of honor. He says, blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. You are blessed in your sorrow because things are not how they should be and change is going to come and the party is going to be that much more sweet because the road to get there was so bitter and so terrible and so real. I don't mean to gloss over this. He says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. And it's so ironic that these are coming from Jesus' lips, just chapters ahead of his own rejection, his own hatred geared at him, and ultimately his own being crushed on the cross. He says, you're blessed when following Jesus cost you a whole lot because the kingdom of heaven is a treasure in a field and it's worth everything. To sum this up, in short, you're blessed by downward mobility because it'll get you closer to the foundation. You're blessed by the storm because it will contribute to the renovation of a well-built house without the illusion of well-builtness, without temporary security, 
in all the ways we find it, money, fulfillment, happiness, prestige, distraction. In Christ, we've stumbled on a cornerstone. Someone who's telling us that we need to lose our lives to gain them. Christ tells us that we need to be empty to be filled. That we need to bear the light load of a heavy, heavy cross. It's in him that we're brought into these promises that God's made, God's people, Israel, blessed to be a a blessing. And it's in him that this new foundation includes us also with God's saving history and his future plan for the renewal of all things. It's Jesus who pointed to himself and said, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. It's his resurrection that sets in motion God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That overlapping of God's presence and our presence in our renewed life. So I'll close by asking this morning, what is your foundation built on? This is a simple question, but it's, it's a question that cuts all the way down to our deepest parts. Is it your past? Something you did? Something you were told about yourself? Something you don't think could ever be forgiven? Let God tear that down and let him build you back up in Christ. Is it your present? Like there's people in this room that have a lot going on in the present. Stresses of work or school or family or marriage or loneliness, uncertainty or depression, poverty or selfishness or isolation, insecurity, grief. Let God tear that down and let him build you back up in Christ. Or maybe it's your future. Expectations, idealism, idolatry, hopes and dreams, big things, good things, fear, control, uncertainty, sorrow. Let God tear that down and build you up in Christ. The more I read Scripture and and specifically parables like this, the more I'm starting to be convinced that the kingdom of God looks a lot like a neighborhood. Like, what do you imagine when you imagine the kingdom of God? Probably something like, more off of like a Disney movie, like a kingdom with a moat and all that stuff. I think that the more I read and the more God renews my imagination and transforms my mind, the more it looks like a neighborhood. It's a community of well-built houses, flourishing, secure, lasting, rebuilt from the ground up with Christ as the foundation. So I'll close with something Paul wrote in Ephesians, and we study this this summer from Ephesians 2, and this is, this is good news for us. So I'll close with this. Hear this good news. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
and in him you too. I think that's plural. I'm not sure, but that's you too. Y'all too. Are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And pray with me. Father, for those of us in this room who, who you're, you're building and you've been building and it seems like this renovation is never going to be complete, give us patience, give us endurance. Help us stand back and see how far we've come. For those of us in this room who, who just need to be torn down and started over, Lord, give us the courage to, to do that. Give us the radical willingness to to let you mess with that stuff, and to let others walk alongside. Father, we, we trust you. We thank you for promising to be firm for us when it seems like everything else shifts and changes. Father, don't let us be so obsessed with that, those nine inches of sway way above the ground. Let us be a, way more concerned and way more trusting and way more um, solid about that 60 feet of concrete that's under the ground that no one can see that we forget's even there. Let us stand on it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We, we have faith in you. We Help us obey, and trust. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.